when you get to a certain scale, like conglomerates just need to provide autonom- as much autonomy as possible to each individual unit so that they can compete effectively in their space while thinking about what is the shared asset that they can leverage. Is it because they are concentrated in a specific set of industries, they have supplier negotiation leverage so they can think about where else in the value chain they can attack? Is it that they have financing leverage? They have access to better cost of capital. Is it customers? Is there a customer database they can leverage and cross-sell more effectively? So trying to find things that enhance their advantage is probably where you would want to see them versus trying to pick too many disparate things to do. Because you're like, yeah, why not? We could do that. But then I think there's a question of when you stack rank all the things you possibly could do, what is your current set of assets lend itself best to? Gives you the best chance of winning. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.ringcast.co.id. Morning, Shein. Morning, Jeremy. How's it going? Good. You had a wonderful holiday. You want to share a little bit about that? Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah. I mean, after Camp Hustle, I stayed a couple of days. Uh, my daughter had her birthday. And so I gave her the choice. Do you want a birthday party or do you want a trip? And she wisely chose a trip, telling me, Mama, I have many more birthdays to come. So um, I got out of planning a birthday party, which was a win for me. Um, and we got to spend really nice quality time together uh, for a couple of days in Bali. Yeah. For myself, I'm preparing to go back to the Singapore Army Reservist. So it's been a while. And I think it's been interesting just ramping up, getting my postings and so forth. Uh, so fun times. Well, you wanted it, right? They'd forgotten about you forgot and you reminded them that you existed <laughs> and was like, hey guys, I'm still here. I'm ready to do some service. Yes, I did. I did. I did volunteer. So, you know, I think what's interesting, of course, is that before we go off, let's talk a little bit about technology in Asia. So there were two reports that came out over the past month. The first being the Southeast Asia Tech in Asia conference report about a couple dozen pages. They named it SEA Marks the Spot. So <laughs> I like how everyone's got, got to figure out that name, right, that we have here. I thought it was quite a good snapshot, high-level summary, of course, of the various countries. And then I think it was a handy summary about what was going on. What did you think about it, Shien? Yeah, I think it's pretty consistent with other regional reports we've reviewed in the past. Nothing jumped out as like, hey, that's so weird. What's going on there? 
Yeah. But I think it's a pretty consistent picture. I think the one interesting thing that they point out was biotech. Obviously, they covered fintech and other plays that were available. They went country by country. But I thought it was interesting for them to just quickly give that snapshot of some of the biotech plays. Because I think most folks don't really think about Southeast Asia in terms of biotech. Of course, when they talk about biotech, actually, they're also talking primarily about the Singapore cluster is there as well. But there's also work in US and global partners, right? So I thought it was an interesting play. And I thought there's an interesting cluster that I hadn't necessarily always thought about. We don't cover it through our funds a lot. So definitely an area where I'm pretty ignorant. Yeah. Maybe next time we can have someone to help us with that as well. On that note, I think the bigger report that we we're quite excited to get into was the Southeast Asia conglomerates failed to keep pace with Pure Place by being a company. That's the title they had. It's written by John Pierre. Fallenbrook and Tilverstring. So JP is actually a fellow volunteer with me at Harvard MBA Club of Singapore. We're both on the board of directors. But I think they wrote a very interesting article talking about, I'll give a summary of it, which is that the top line summary, they said that over the past decade, most conglomerates in Southeast Asia underperformed. They started tracking it because they outperformed. Yeah, that's true. So what the report shares is that Bain started tracking Southeast Asia's conglomerates in 2003 because they were an anomaly. And what that meant was that they actually outperformed conglomerates in all other parts of the world and even outperformed pure play companies in Southeast Asia multiple criteria, including shareholder returns. And so between 2003 to 2012, the shareholder returns on an annualized basis was eight percentage points higher than that of the regional pure plays, which is kind of crazy. But what's interesting is that their findings was that over the past decade, these conglomerates have begun underperforming pure plays in all of the dimensions of shareholder returns, revenue growth, margins, and multiples. And so it's been an interesting dynamic where their findings were that conglomerates have struggled to navigate low growth environments and market volatility, and of course, build out some set of recommendations. So Shia, what do you think about conglomerates in general? Yeah, I think this is pretty expected, which is that they started tracking it because it was weird that the conglomerates were outperforming. And now you're getting the reversion to the mean where as the ecosystem matures and becomes more competitive, the benefits of size and diversification and, and government relationships reduce as pure plays basically are able to focus and allocate capital more effectively in that specific industry. I think this is the challenge of any sort of business or capital allocation exercise, which is like the more diverse the activities become, the harder it is to make trade-offs across them. Mm. And so you're sub-optimizing trade-offs across them unless you can really devolve decision-making power down to people who are actually on the ground. But the part of being a conglomerate generally is that you want to be able to control mm. lots of different things. And so I think that's one aspect of it. It's like the capital allocation part. And I think the other part is probably talent, which is that it may be more challenging as ecosystems to mature for conglomerates to attract talent um, because if you are a top talent, you want to go work for the pure play so that you can focus on one thing and do that aggressively rather than having to fight for capital and resources at a conglomerate store. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. And what they have the findings for is that over the past 10 years, pure plays have performed at 11%, which talks about the efficiency, the ability to hunt and pursue their goals without too much overhead. Whereas conglomerates only performed at 4% in terms of uh, total annualized shareholder return, which is actually a really large gap. So it's almost a total inversion of that 
difference. I, I guess when I think about these numbers, of course, I always think to myself a little bit as well. It's like the past 10 years also have been a weird year in terms of interest rates and so, so forth. So I, I guess for me in my head, I'm still passing a bit, which is I definitely agree with you about that reversion to the mean. I think in American management literature, there's always been a very strong focus on pure plays as a, a stronger approach to do what needs to be done. But I'm also wondering in my head whether the lower interest rates over that past decade played a significant part. I'm just, again, I'm highly speculating here, but it's just something that I'm aware that the past decade was an interesting one. I think it's possible that lower interest rates gave pure plays access to cheaper capital than would have been normally available. And that one of the benefits maybe a conglomerate had initially is that their size and their historical maturity gave them access to cheaper capital, which is like yeah. an additional sort of compounded advantage that you might have. And so it's possible that the low interest rate environment took away one of those advantages to enable the pure place to get a little bit more heft and competitive footing against the pure place. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And historically, that's what we learned is that conglomerates really came to existence because they obviously started out as a pure play company once. They did well. Then they started building out that management layer, which is a talent advantage. But also started building out their financial and they start reinvesting profits from that core business into other businesses that are relatively capital staff. And then that's how you build out that dominance across more place. So that the natural organic history, like you said, is capital reinvestment advantage, especially in capital staff countries. And I think that's interesting dynamic here as I was reading this off this chart that they have, but it said that the conglomerate's advantages faded in more developed economies first. So even within Southeast Asia, there's actually that chronological step-by-step. -step. So Thailand, pure place overtook conglomerates in 2008, Malaysia in 2011, Singapore in 2014, Indonesia in 2015, Philippines in 2016, and Vietnam in 2017. The advantages faded in more developed economies first. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. I'm surprised that Singapore is after Thailand. <laughs> it's like, now we want to, like, what, compare them, conglomerate to conglomerate. Yeah. And I think there's that sort of that work on what is the complexity of an economy as a measure of how advanced it is. And so I guess I would have imagined that Singapore would earlier than some of these other economies, rather than middle of the pack. Yeah, so they mentioned the fact that there are better conglomerates and stronger. So they call them all by the stars. But basically, they were at top quartile status. They were able to uh, increase their revenue, defend their margins, and expand their multiples, even in this lower growth environment. They mentioned names like Sinomas and Kelby in Indonesia, EDMS Group and DKSH Holdings in Thailand, Sunway Group and Hongleong Group in Malaysia, and Enrique Raison Group in the Philippines. So I thought that was all just fascinating dynamics there where... There was a saying that the top quartile companies are still able to do so. So it's not that, I mean, the easy takeaway is like pure plays are better. Always do pure plays and conglomerates should unbundle and sell off and spin off into pure plays. So that's one part. But I think they're also saying that, hey, there are conglomerates who can actually perform well as a conglomerate. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. When you think about these conglomerates, how do you think about how conglomerates should do well from your perspective? I think... When you get to a certain scale, I think the conglomerates just need to provide autonom as much autonomy as possible to each individual unit so that they can compete effectively in their space while thinking about what is the shared asset that they can leverage. So yeah. is it because they are concentrated in a specific set of industries, they have supplier negotiation leverage so they can think about where else in the value chain they can attack? Is it that they have financing leverage? They have access to better cost of capital? Is it customers? Is there a customer database they can leverage and cross-sell more effectively? So trying to find things that enhance their advantage is probably where you would want to see them versus trying to pick too many disparate things to do. Because you're like, yeah, why not? We could do that. But then I think there's a question of when you stack rank all the things you possibly could do, 
what is your current set of assets lend itself best to? Gives you the best chance of winning. Yeah. I think that question of synergy across all of it is actually the most the key question, right? Because if you look at companies, to mention other top quarter companies like Finma Corporation Philippines, Amtec Indonesia, Vin Group Vietnam. So they were all generally in healthcare technology or renewable energy. I think these are all dynamics where you sit down and say, okay, it's important to be in categories that are growing fast. So healthcare, renewable energy. Two is the synergies you mentioned. I think they're both revenue and cost synergies that are there. I think cost synergies, I think that's a big issue for a lot of conglomerates is that there's a lot of cost dis-synergies, which is that as they add more businesses, they have more overhead, they tend to have larger HQ, they tend to react slower. So I think that's one of the dis-synergies that they have. But I think on the revenue synergies, that's why they have, we talked about capital allocation, supposed to be better or more available. Like you said, customer base, government relations. All these are. I think the other one is like we've seen in various parts of Southeast Asia is that um, because their businesses span quite a lot of employees, they can often be initial customers for new businesses. So they can get something, they can bootstrap a new business quickly by using their own employees as initial customers as well. Yeah. Actually, that's a really true point because I think one way they opt to do it is the idea become downstream integration or vertical integration. So they go up where they take over the supplies, in which case they are their own customers, or they go move downstream and then they can use that to go down the processing value chain as well. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a conglomerate, Jeremy, that you're trying to optimize? I think what's interesting is that obviously for these conglomerates, they've got the hustle, they've got to stay on top of it. And I think there's two interesting pieces. One is that comes up for technology is that technology companies are by definition pure place because the startups, they're growing, they're building up a vertical business on average. But two, of course, is that uh, these conglomerates are, have to make a decision about how they're competing with them, how to collaborate with them as a partnership, or maybe even acquire them, right, in order to stay on top of the game. And I think we see that quite a bit in the US as well. Yeah, I think the one interesting thing is that in Southeast Asia and in China, we have these things called super apps, which may be kind of like a modern day attempt at a conglomerate (laughs) where you're trying to leverage your initial traction in one vertical to be able to bootstrap others. And there's always been these questions like, why doesn't this, why don't you have a super app in the US? Why don't you have a super app in Europe, right? More developed economies. Yeah. I think the answer has always been in more emerging markets, there's less competition, but there's also less infrastructure built. And so if you already went to the trouble of building infrastructure for your first vertical, (laughs) you want to leverage it. And so you look at what other places you can expand into. And so you get these much more horizontal plays than you see in more developed economies. But I I think the the jury is still out on the technology conglomerate Mm. and whether or not those advantages can be leveraged effectively. And so I think we've seen Grab and Gojek and Seagroup all try like a bunch of different things. I think C-Group has been more focused and disciplined in the number of experiments they've been running, whereas I think Grab and Gojek have really gone wider on the types of things that they've tried to put into that home screen, which is like, do you want trip insurance? Do you want a loan? Do you want to invest money? Do you want to buy a movie ticket? As like, no, I just want to get a car. I just want to go from A to B. And so I think there's recent news that Grab is shutting down their consumer investing unit and I think that could be evidence that, hey, maybe the perceived synergies of having that user base don't necessarily extend to everything. And I think this is the sort of point, which is, I just want to get from A to B. Why am I going to buy investing product from you? It kind of feels very disjointed as a customer experience. Yeah, I think it's true because what you're discussing is at a superficial, shallow level. I think the logic for why, like say, super apps are actually quite similar to conglomerates. We have a bunch of capital from, in this case, from venture capital and the private markets that lets us expand there's a bunch of verticals that 
we believe that we can execute this as well at, we can be our first customers and we can cross-pollinate the user base and so, so forth and then do that. I think it was always like the devils and the details and execution, right? In any dynamic here, because you mentioned a great one, which was for conglomerates, you're often very much your own customer. So like, well, I think that a lot of the synergy really happens from a cost perspective because you can always vertically integrate. You can buy out your suppliers, you can buy out your customers and vertically integrate. And for example, you're doing like a paper, right? You're doing timber and wood forestry. Then you can go into paper processing and you can go into paper products. And then you can go adjacent, which is you can do agriculture, which is adjacent to forestry and plantation management. So I think there's a lot of like, you can imagine, and then all this has been the same geographic area. And the truth is with these hard assets, physical assets, obviously you're driving down costs, but you also have a density of talent and support in that region. But I think what's interesting about super apps is that it's very flat. What I mean by that is like, let's say talk about Grab, right? You have 10 apps within the Grab app effectively, right? You have Grab Gifts, Grab Invest in the past, which they closed. And there's, there's all these sub apps. But the truth is if you go one level up, all the other apps are there. You have your app, Apple App Store with any store you want. Obviously, you have all the other apps that you can potentially use. So the plane of competition from a customer perspective is almost like flick of a button. And so that makes it a very interesting dynamic where I think it's being thoughtful about that chain of expansion is actually like the devil in the details. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only sort of counter example I can think of that is like Costco, where it's like Costco is like a, a mega mart in the U.S., Actually, it's international. They've got Costco's in Australia and Taiwan and whatnot. Not in Singapore yet, though. I would love to have Costco in Singapore. It probably does not make a lot of business sense. And you go in and you're buying food items, you're buying clothing, blah, blah, blah. But then as you check out and you exit the Costco warehouse, there's this whole line of services. So you can buy a car from Costco. You can buy business insurance from Costco. You can get crazy amounts of things. And I think that's the only example that I've seen where because they've built such a trusted relationship with you and the entire premise of it is that they will sell everything to you at basically cost plus a small, tiny margin. It is somehow like they've trained their members basically over the decades that it's not that weird to buy business insurance from the same place that you buy Cheetos. Whereas in the context of Grab, first of all, it's a much younger country company, so we don't have that depth of relationship yet. But when I am buying a ride, I'm definitely not thinking about investing. And when I'm thinking about investing, I'm not like, hey, I should open my Grab app. You know, it's what's the customer journey as they're yeah. making their considered purchase? Right. And what is your sort of like right to play yeah. as the vendor of saying, hey, you should trust me and you should do this thing. Like, what? why do I believe that this is the best place for me to get an investing product? Versus some of the other things like in Indonesia with Gojek, they had, there's the rides, there's the food delivery. That's pretty common. But then there's also the services, which I think is a feature of Indonesia. Like, hey, I want a masseuse. Yeah. Or I want laundry or I want these things. And because of the horrific traffic, it's really common to have these things come to you instead of you going to them. Right. Um, And it doesn't feel as big a mental leap to seek those services. But I I don't know, Jeremy, have you ever bought a financial product from your rideshare app? The answer is uh, no. And I think that's why they're shutting it down, the the business unit, right? But I think it kind of goes back to your ride. So for me, what I've definitely done a cross sell, you know, cross buy, whatever you want to call it, is I've taken a grab going home and then I'm exhausted from work. I definitely go in and then I go buy food as well so that it roughly arrives maybe 10 or 20 minutes after I arrive home because I don't need to cook. And then I just freshen up and then go get my, pick up my dinner from the, the grab delivery. And I think what's interesting, of course, is that 
it makes sense a little bit, at least in terms of that moment in time, but also from that perspective of, hey, you know, they already have the supply side in terms of the drivers and a ride who are delivering people and delivering packages. So there's that supply side synergy that we talked about in the conglomerate side, which is there's that advantage that you can have. So I think that's the opportunity that's there. I mean, if I'm going to grab app, I'm honestly on my phone anyway, the next 10, 20, 30 minutes as well. So I think they're just trying to make sure that you can buy something. But it reminds me of the airlines. They have that gift shop that you have. Yeah. Like Jetstar or Asia or Singapore. Yeah, but that's because you're trapped, right? You're trapped on the plane. And then historically, there was that weird tax-free angle to it, which is why there's stuff like cosmetics and booze. But it always (laughs) seemed like you could do more with duty-free. It's just such a weird collection of things. It's like, okay, here I am on a plane. You're like, do you want La Mer face cream? (laughs) Do you want bears dressed in sarong kabayas for your child? It's like this so random collection of things where you're just like, I don't know. It's like a really weird set of things and, and now also even like the printed magazines yeah. are super strangely outdated why wouldn't you just try to sell me more current things i guess yeah like you said you don't have wi-fi generally on the plane so you're truly a captive audience but you're just there for three hours or four hours so i think it makes sense for them to try to sell you right as much as they can that's also honestly how to get you on the food because every time i'm so bored and i'm just like they show up like here's all the chips and snacks and then i'm just like i feel i want to eat for fun and i think that's a big moment i think the interesting thing is if you do a grab it's like the alternative is whatever's on your phone so again it goes back to your plane of competition it's like it costs me nothing to slide my thumb and then I can switch to any app, right? Instagram, TikTok, WhatsApp, email, Slack. So I think there's that plane of competition. So I think that actually is an interesting dynamic where I think every pure play company startup looks at app stores. It's a wonderful place for discovery, but it's so crowded because every app is effectively of the same dimension, right? So you're just competing against some crazy apps. A lot of folks are like, oh, my app is going to be go through the app. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not saying it's easy to distribute. But to get that mindshare, the time. But what's your alternative? Your alternative is a native website that no one knows, like no one goes there, right? So I feel like I think we could decry the power of the App Store or we could decry the power of Amazon. There's this lawsuit right now. There's an anti-competitive lawsuit against Amazon. But like many of those sellers wouldn't have a business without those platforms. Their alternative was actually like way worse, (laughs) which was to set up their own sort of either brick and mortar or commodity item website that they would then have to independently build organic traffic to, which would they're not equipped to do, right? Versus like, hey, I'm just going to list this thing on Amazon. Anybody searches for it and Amazon already has all those eyeballs, they're going to get there, right? Same thing for the App Store, right? Every single Apple user is on the App Store looking for something. So I think a lot of people don't think about distribution and distribution is a lot of work. But I think to, to the earlier sort of comment, which is like, when can you leverage your existing customer base? And when is it just theoretically possible, but practically not actually that actionable? Yeah. Two quick stories is like for the Brave Podcast, and we tried using a different community app, standalone, like you said, website plus standalone app did not work. People are just not used to going to those apps. So we just basically said, you know what? People are using WhatsApp. Let's create a WhatsApp community. (laughs) And then a subset of WhatsApp because people just check it. So I think there's that co-opting behavior that a strong distribution platform can have. And I think that's where Apple App Store can charge that toll because that's the distribution play, right? Same for Google Store, same for WhatsApp. They don't charge a toll yet, but I'm sure that's coming down the pipes as they go through there. I think the second part of it is one of the interesting learnings I've had honestly over the past three months is actually how similar the stories for C Group and VNG Group are, right? Because they both started with games. Then they had an audience of young millennial 
males who were tech savvy and so who were starting and then they followed those customers to eventually go into e-commerce to sell stuff. They are both the same dynamics where they're both doing financial services to lower the cost of transactions. And then of course, from that, I think that's where the story splits up a little bit because some did messaging apps, some have done a different place. But I was just actually really surprised and it's a broader story. It's also a Chinese conglomerate, a super app story as well, where they're following this customer list around as they get richer and so, so forth. So I thought it was a really interesting reflection because I think with coming back from the US, that's not actually a common path. You don't see Blizzard or Activision saying like, hey, let's become a conglomerate. So I thought this is a but really think, fascinating way. But the difference there, I think, yeah. is that Blizzard and Activision started out as publishers, right? Whereas Seagru um, and VNG didn't. They started out as distributors. They were distributing titles coming out of publishers who wanted access to Southeast Asia because it was like, this new market where they didn't have pre-existing relationships with gamers. And so I think I'm a big believer that every company's DNA is set by the founder, but also your early experiences as a company. So how you think about yourself as a business drives a lot of your business decision making. And so I would guess, and I don't know, that if you grew up as a distributor, then you think a lot about what more can I push down this channel? Not if you thought of yourself as a publisher, you're like, how can I make better games? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that trying to, because the problem of being a distributor and then you're working with a publisher is that the publisher can just say goodbye. I can do this directly and go directly to consumers now because we understand the region. I think there's been a lot of the debate that's been happening, a lot of you know, disintermediation of these distributors by the big game brands. So that's been an interesting trend there. And then you see these distributors investing in studios because they're trying to find a replacement game and some of them have done well. So Arcade, talking about Free Fire, for example, for C Group, they've done well. And they track and keep looking for other hits. But it's an interesting dynamic where I thought one interesting analysis that I had was that they basically started to gamify shopping is one experience, but also putting shopping within gamified content has also been an interesting learning for me. Shopee is super different looking than Amazon, right? As a shopping right. experience. Yeah. With all the little uh, mini games that you play. Yeah. It's bonkers. And you know, I'm <laughs> like, I, I don't want to collect coins. This is not a quest for me. I just need to buy something. But that's how you know I'm an old millennial geriatric one. No, I'm, it's because you it's because you probably came of age yeah. in a Western e-commerce model. Yeah. So your sensibilities, your, your brain is trained towards that shopping experience. Yeah, it's I like when Uber went to China and they were like, why is it so hard for people to use this interface? Isn't it so normal that like, hey, you just type in the address. Yeah. But even like the address construct is different, right? And so like yeah. when you use like Didi, it was like, oh no, you pick me up at the intersection of the ring road and this yeah. other thing, not like, yeah. hey, here's the precise address. And the interface was like, you would speak your address rather than type it. And so I feel like that's the other thing. Our habits are set by the thing that initially taught us yeah. how to do that. Yeah, it's generational. And that's the interesting dynamic because if you, and I think that's where it goes back to how founders and VCs also look at categories because you look at e-commerce and you're like, okay, point of e-commerce is to buy stuff. But if you're gamifying it, you're basically what you're saying is shopping is fun, right? You know, it, you buy something and then something shows up, you get rewarded for it and you want to hunt for the best deal and you want to avoid the traps. There is a game in acquisition yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah, totally. But also if you interview Chinese consumers right. and you show them Western shopping apps, right. they say it feels cold. It's not warm. Also the colors, if you look at the color scheme, sometimes when you look at Chinese shopping, you're like, why is there so much red, orange, and yellow? <laughs> and you're like, ah, it's like you've been trained to the minimalist, yeah. cool tone. I, I mean, that's the whole point, right? 
have all the confetti comes up and you make a acquisition. And I'm like old enough and I've been a gamer, right? And I'm just like, okay, okay, I didn't kill an animal enemy and have spots of blood come out. And I bought something and I got confetti. And then you get those loot boxes as well and things like that. I'm just like, why are we having a loot box while I'm buying something? But even like, when you send money, you know, when you send the hong bao yeah, yeah. and the little like coin sound happens. Oh my God. It's like it's, very delightful. That means delicious. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's what they have. It's great. You know, and then, oh, so all these things. And then I was like, grab, obviously, when you order food, it's like, what are you craving right now? As someone who's studied a lot of behavioral economics, I'm like, I know you, you're trying to trigger me into craving something. Because what are you craving right now? It's not like, what do you want to buy? Or what sustenance shall you acquire for your family? Of no. course not. Yeah, exactly, that. right? Is that what you're craving? And then first slide is obviously fried you know, chicken. Fried something. chicken. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you ask me, salty like, and fried and yummy. Yeah, exactly. It was like, if the question was, what should you buy? I'll be like, I'll, I'm going to buy a salad. Oh, no, you would over. never do that. I would. I, I want to. Sorry. No, I don't want to. Sorry. Let me clarify. You want to be the kind of person that might do that. Exactly. <laughs> but what I want is Jolly Bee. McDonald's, things like that. Do you know what? I was just past a Jollibee yesterday and the tagline on the store was home of chicken joy. Yeah. I was like, what? That's what the meal's called. <laughs> Talking about train customers, I'm like, I, I walk by that slogan and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely ready for that. I mean, look, it's okay. The pun is like chicken joy, right? Enjoy chicken joy. I think it's a good portmanteau, right? I don't get it. I was like, that's ridiculous. What? How do you not get it? I think you got to eat more chicken. You gotta eat more chicken joy and enjoy the chicken. I think turning 40 makes you feel like you should eat less fried food, basically. You definitely should eat less fried food in general. (laughs) You're not wrong about that. But it's it's like, it's an active hack of will to not eat jolly. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 So I haven't been trained on that. But yes, (laughs) I, I do feel like the smell is very enticing. I think there were a couple of more items, right? I think on the topic of consolidation and slimming yeah. down and focus on the core. So right. I think Spenmo announced another layoff. Right. Seems like they have an acting CEO in place after the last one left. So I think the CPO is now the acting CEO. And they, again, I think focusing on trying to right-size the business. Since they did raise a fair amount of money last year, so they probably got good runway, but trying to evaluate business options, get things to a place where you can get to profitability. Yeah, I, I think that companies and startups are continuing to lay off. So anecdotally, I'm definitely hearing about companies that like in some dynamic where they just said, hey, fundraise isn't working out or they don't think it's going to work out the way they want it to work out. So they're starting to take steps to do it. But of course, I think the big difference between the layoffs that we were seeing a year ago versus now is quite dramatically different. I think this is everyone's prime, prepared, resolute. Employees are like self-aware that this is a possibility and uh, generally feels like we're already at the bottom of the market. I think things should look better. But I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is I thought it was uh, fun to briefly talk about the Southeast Asia Tech Report and talk a little bit about the high-level point of view. The second, of course, that we really dug into was really about conglomerates and how we think about what's been happening in terms of the anomaly where they were outperforming pure plays in Southeast Asia. But we actually got to see that they have now underperformed over the past decade. We can see the transition over the past decade, country by country. And we talk about some of the intrinsic advantages that they had about why they came about in terms of capital allocation, in terms of you know talent and leadership, in terms of distribution. We also talked about why they have been falling behind and what they need to do better, which is to invest in technology, get lean, restructure, maybe invest or acquire in some startups to the US companies do in order to stay ahead. And lastly, I thought it was interesting where we actually drew the parallel, right, between conglomerates and super apps. So we talked about some of the similar logic dimensions, but also where the logic kind of like falls apart and where the advantages are for super apps are going to all the way from uh, Grab, all the way to C Group and VNG. All right. Thanks, Shane. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. 
Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.